Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Well, good afternoon and happy International Women's Day to you. It is eight minutes after one o'clock. This is Life Happens. My name is Pimelo Motene. We're going to be together until three. And we are going to try and just for today, focus our lens a little bit more on women and what International Women's Day absolutely means in many quarters that we sometimes don't open the lid on because there is an assumption that um, those who fight for our rights often know for sure to fight for us. But is that actually always the case? This afternoon, I'm going to be speaking to Ford Foundation's International Program Director, and uh, she's a director as well, uh, focusing on gender, racial and ethnic justice, as she's been relentless and has written many, many articles and papers on this particular issue. Nicolette Naylor is with us this afternoon. A very good afternoon, uh, Nicolette. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us this afternoon. No problem. I'm glad to be here. Happy International Women's Day. What does it mean to you, Nicolette? Well, I think International Women's Day is a time for us to really celebrate the achievements of women. But I think it's also, I worry about the commodification of Women's Day. It's not mm-hmm. just about giving women flowers mm-hmm. or taking women out to dinner. Mm-hmm. It's actually a, a day that we should put in political perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's a day to push us towards gender equality and really reflect on where we're not making progress and what we still need to do. So, you know, I would encourage rather than men going out to get women flowers, men should be going out there to demand that we're getting equal pay and we lessening the gender pay gap or that we're reducing violence against women. Um, so let's not only focus on the commodification of International Women's Day, but celebrate and push for more change where we need more change. Mm. I mean, you you are advocating for change in philanthropy and you are saying as wonderful as some of these organizations are, there is an anti-blackness and an agendedness in how we approach philanthropy and it needs to be addressed. Yes, definitely. I think, you know, philanthropy has been known to support issues of gender equality and really get behind uh, an agenda around gender and and women's rights. But I think we need to go much further than that, particularly Mm. in the South African context, but also globally, Mm. to really push ourselves to say, are we supporting black women and are we putting black women at the center of our response? And are we funding black women? Because philanthropy funds civil society in this country, philanthropy funds civil society around the world, but often with a bias towards white-led organizations. And I think in the South African context, we have to call that out. We have an amazing generation of black women leaders that actually need to be supported and need to be funded. Um, Like we want them to win, like we want them to make a difference um, Mm. for the long haul. Um, We often see black women as... We invite black women to tell their stories of of victimhood um, versus inviting women into the space as leaders in their own right Mm -hmm. that need to be supported Mm -hmm. and funded for Mm -hmm. the long haul, Mm -hmm. not only to just come and tell stories of, of abuse or violence. 
So, so what's interesting, Nicolette, for me is that certainly where I'm sitting, every time we have this conversation with other people, other funders, there is a recognition that there is underfunding of black-led NPOs and those kind of uh, organizations. But there, there, there isn't enough will to then do something about it. So there is a recognition and there's certainly an understanding why that is. Uh, I've been speaking to the Solidarity Fund now for, for a while as well, and they've given me the sense that it's it's actually difficult for many to raise funds because they just don't have the expertise and so on. They're doing the work, but they don't have the expertise to raise funds. So there is a recognition. But to what extent is there... Um, the will to fix that and to know that while we recognize where the gaps are, we need to fill in those gaps too. I, I put the onus on philanthropy needs to, you know, so it's up to the Solidarity Fund, it's up to philanthropy yeah. to fill those gaps. Yeah. Um, I get quite tired of us saying, oh, well, you know, the women out there on the ground that's doing the hard work, you know, they don't know how to fundraise mm. or they don't know. We need to remove the structural barriers. Mm. We need to remove the bureaucratic barriers to enable women to access funding. Mm. Um, I don't think that's an excuse that we can use anymore. And we need to say to ourselves, look, let's invest in trust-based models. Mm -hmm. Where you're trusting, mm -hmm. you know, often we say, oh, it's too risky mm -hmm. to fund black women. Mm -hmm. or we don't know what's going to happen to the money. Or they, oh, the one that really gets me going they don't know how to manage the yep. funds yep. are they going to be accountable mm -hmm. for the funds mm -hmm. no i think all of that are just structural barriers that are actually grounded in in a racist perception of black-led organizations that we have to dismantle in this country and we have to start saying what does a trust-based model look like where we listen and learn where we say black women are actually the experts and have been fighting issues of gender equality, gender-based violence for decades. Mm. And we have to get behind their work, their vision, and trust that they're going to do what, what needs to be done. And it requires us to also rethink the log frame model and all the models that we've imported from other contexts that say, this is what success looks like. Mm -hmm. This is what I'll see. This is the theory of change we need. This is the kind of proposal that we need. Mm. We've developed templates mm. that are actually exclusionary, mm. um, the way those templates have been developed. And it's not based on listening to what women on the ground need or how they develop programs or how they measure their success. Um, so it's a responsive form of philanthropy. And I think COVID has created an opportunity for us to see that actually we can do this. We can be more responsive and we can listen more. You saw many donors adapt the way they do funding and get money out the door very quickly. Whereas in the past, we struggle to get money out the door. It takes six weeks or three months to fund an organization because we have all these due diligence requirements that are often stumbling blocks for organizations. And philanthropy actually needs to rethink the way it operates in a climate that's more responsive and that's more grounded in local experiences. Are you a lone voice in this, Nicolette? Because I, I certainly haven't heard, you know, many speak like this who are within the system. So it's quite refreshing hearing this. I've heard others say that who are observers of what is happening in philanthropy. But certainly when you're inside, do you have people who, who say what you're saying under, you know, in, in close quarters? 
I think people do say this and people pay lip service to mm. everyone wanted to sign on to, to the Black Lives Matter mm. slogans and we get behind black women. I think people are willing to, to, to speak like this, but putting our money where mm. our mouths are mm. and actually funding this work. And that's why I think we need a method of tracking mm. how much money can we track as baseline how much money is philanthropy giving to black-led organizations on a continuous basis, mm. not once off? Because <laughs> often people say, oh, we did funding to do this project. Has that line just dropped on us? I think it has. Uh, and in fact, what I'm going to do is just go through some of the numbers that um, Nicolette has mentioned in an article she wrote recently talking about how to track this money. And I stand to be corrected, but at the time when she wrote this article, she mentioned something like only 6% of funding going to black-led organizations. 6% is, is just, it's, it's, it's scary. It's scary because often the issues that we are dealing with are issues that address women issues. So how is it that only about 6% and I'll clarify with her if that number is, is correct, uh, is, is allocated to black led organizations. Nicolette, I, th I believe you're back with us. I am. Sorry about that. And I was just saying um, while you were offline there that you've raised some issues around how much actually is spent on black-led organizations. And I think it was 6%, but I, I'm looking at your document now and I think it's worse. I think it's 0.6%. That was global, the global flow of money. And so in my role as a global director, we've been tracking and looking. There's many organizations that are actually tracking at the global level the funding that goes to women and girls of color. And it was 0.6% of all foundation funding. Um, and this was a few years ago. Yes, yes. That was okay. going to women of color. Oy. And But when you say a few years ago, 2016 is not that long ago. Yeah, and what the recent data on women's rights organization funding, if we look globally, mm. um, for length, the money that's going, philanthropic money that's going to women's rights organizations, mm. you will see it's only about 2%, 2 to 5% of all funds are going to women's rights organizations. Wow. So there's a, I must be clear, there's an underfunding of women's rights organizations. Mm. Many organizations say they're funding work that's focused on gender, but whether they fund women's rights organizations, feminist organizations, very, very low. Globally, the percentages are very low. Just give us and a distinction. And then that, if you break it down to black-led organizations, yeah. you get to the 0.6%, the 1%, wow. the, the 2%. And that's why I think for local foundations in South Africa, we need to start tracking this to get the South African data. Mm -hmm. um, if you're funding, if you're committed to gender, and you committed to gender equality, how much of your funding is actually going to women's rights organizations, grassroots organizations, feminist organizations, and of that percentage, how much is going to black-led organizations? Because I think then we can have a, con a real conversation. Because mm. at the moment, we speak anecdotally, mm. and no one in the philanthropic rooms that I'm in mm. will ever say that they don't support black women. Mm -hmm. Everyone supports <laughs> black women. Everyone is supported to an agenda that going to support black women in South Africa. But I think we actually need to start unpacking the data and what the barriers are because people often say, oh, they don't pass the mm, legal mm, requirements mm, or mm. they're not 
passing our due diligence mm-hmm. test or mm-hmm. they don't have their audited statements yep. in order. Yep. And so then we can start saying, well, let's look at those structural barriers. Let's look at how to overcome those structural barriers and what foundations are doing to help that. And let's set ourselves targets and say within the next five years, we as a sector want to be improving mm-hmm. on, on the numbers mm-hmm. um, of who we support and why we sure. support organisations. I'm going to take calls, if you don't mind, Nicolette. Aisha is calling from Uppington. Good afternoon, Aisha. Good afternoon, Pamela. Happy Women's Day yes. to you and your guests. Thank I you. agree with her 500%. Mm. I have a micro-business. Mm. And this is a challenge to the Solidarity Fund to fund me to write the project proposals and compile the budgets for black women-owned NGOs. That is one. Mm -hmm. And two, the structural barriers that that she's talking about, not having audited financial Mm -hmm. statements. Mm -hmm. How do they expect grassroots people to pay those bookkeepers. Hello? Wow. I am so listening to you, Aisha. I'm so listening to you. I hear you completely. Right? Mm. So that is all that, that I want to say. And she's right about the international internationally. We don't get the uh, people of color. Black women don't get funded easily because there's a mafia, there's a syndicate. <laughs> oh they operate like that. Let me get off the air before Do- I put myself in more trouble. <laughs> Nicholas, I mean, I know, I know she's chuckling a bit, but, but that perception persists, right? So we've heard this before, that there is a bit of a cabal going on in the philanthropic um, uh, arena as well. And, and let's talk about those administrative costs. It, I, yes. This comes up all the time that the model of funding often doesn't address the the you know the regional problems that the structural problems. So if you're in South Africa and you're not going to get um, data for free and you need to be paying for those data costs, sometimes the funding doesn't address that. Exactly, and I think Aisha makes so many good points here. The fact, often the fact that you don't have audited financial statements, mm. you don't, you can't fill out the complicated template mm. that needs to be filled out. You don't have data costs. Yeah. How do we actually set up mechanisms? And I really think the role of intermediaries, the role of women's funds that can actually, how does foundation support the, the capacity needs? You mm. can't expect grassroots organizations to hire consultants. Your big urban NGOs get consultants to fill out the log frames, get all their paperwork in order and apply for money. And that's why we see a skewing of funding to large urban NGOs versus rural grassroots organizations. And you're going to keep running into this difficulty until you actually say, what do we need to do to create the financial mechanisms and lessen the burden on organizations themselves to be able to apply for money. And I think we can learn a lot from other entities. If you look at how Gift of the Givers operate, Mm. if you look at how local intermediaries operate, they've overcome those barriers or they work with. So it's a different way of partnering. It's grounded in trust where you're working with your grassroots local organization and saying, okay, let's do this together. How do we meet the financial challenges because I don't want to be misunderstood that mm-hmm. there aren't 
due diligence sure. requirements. Yeah. You know, you need I, to be I able to it. track where money is going. Yeah. Yeah. But you can actually do this together where you're funding those costs. Yeah. Where I, the funder is covering those costs. Yeah. We're requiring you to fill, to overcome all these hurdles. So we're going to pay for those costs. The costs for you to get your financial statements. Yes. Or the costs of data or the costs your of... Your audited statements or whatever. I get it. And if you're not a registered um, entity, that we're going to help you mm. to register to be able to access funding. And we're going to see this as part of addressing the systemic barriers yeah. that we're actually going to address... What are the capacities that smaller organizations need to be able to tap into these large pots of money? Because it's often that that we then hearing about these are the barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about race. You're misunderstanding. This isn't about race. This isn't about smaller organizations. Mm. It's really these administrative hurdles. Mm. And I think that's the, the hard conversation that gets to the nub of what we actually need to address. <laughs> Zaim, you're calling from Cape Town. Hi. Well, it's a very auspicious day because I'm not sure if Nikki's going to remember the name immediately, but this is Zaim Sufi calling uh, one of Nikki's oldest ex-colleagues. Nikki and I did articles together at a law firm about 22 years ago now, almost to the day. So let me let me just tell you, and, and I'll, I'll tell you what I do in a minute, yep. but let me just tell you, when it comes to Nikki, you've got the real deal there. Um, and... Our heart and our soul is in the subject, and though we've not stayed in touch for several years, she strikes me as no different from the Nikki that I knew <laughs> back then and who my wife still talks about because they were at school together, but not not about being personal because I'm sure Nikki's going to blush in the background, <laughs> but <laughs> more, more on the subject. Yes. You know, as... In my current role, I'm the, I'm the CEO of the South African Office of what is the world's largest law firm, but more importantly, a level one BEE, black, homegrown, black-owned, black-operated law firm. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of challenges which Nikki describes are challenges which are so common in the broader context of transformation mm-hmm. and the challenge of transformation. Mm-hmm. And so I admire champions like Nikki and foundations like the Ford Foundation, with whom I've, I've had the privilege of having... Uh, dealings at arm's length mm. and a few specific comments just in the in the space of gender and gender empowerment on on, on women's day mm-hmm. you know for one i think nikki's right i'm afraid to say philanthropy has become it's almost become politicized and economized mm-hmm. you know people think in economic terms about philanthropy before they think about intent impact and cause yeah i think the second thing is that Nikki is a prime example and institutions with the Nikki's of the world are prime examples of how far we go when we capacitate leadership in the right places and in the right spaces. You see, we can talk for ages about women's issues, challenges, transformation, barriers, but if you don't create leadership, you're never going to have impact. And that isn't just leadership in organizations like Nikki's, but leadership in every organization, whether it be in the role that deals with these challenges in a corporate, whether it be in NGOs, and of course, more importantly, in institutions like government who are gatekeepers and enablers of the agenda. The third and the final point I'll make is that I'm afraid to say Nikki is right and that contribution to, to initiatives and to causes like this 
are a different form of syntax. And it's syntax because institutions sometimes feel like they absolve themselves of mm. the original sins that mm. are rooted in mm. structures in society mm. by simply making that one-off donation and being able to sleep peacefully and comfortably at night. Mm. But we've got to seek out and look for and aggregate ourselves with like-minded individuals who share that agenda and will live it from Monday to Monday and not just once a year mm. when it comes time to rack up your BEE spend mm. or to be able to tell your clientele that you've donated to X or to be able to have the next photo opportunity mm. with Y. So I leave it there, but more importantly, it's just fantastic, albeit unplanned, to have the opportunity <laughs> to reconnect with her on the air. <laughs> what a lovely call, Sam. Thank you so much for that. I mean, you've touched on so many things. Do you want to respond before he disappears, Nicolette? Oh, this is this is a blast from the past, <laughs> and I'm reminded about how old I am now. <laughs> Wonderful to hear from you, Sam. And these are such critical points, I think, Hearing that you're still within, within legal practice and the role that the private sector and large private law firms and corporate social investment plays in this space is important, I think. And we all need to grapple with this and how private philanthropy, US, I work at a U.S. foundation, how does U.S. foundations interact with local uh, private sector entities and government? and broader society to tackle this together because I don't think any one entity can mm. solve these structural issues where we're really thinking about how do we invest in the leadership of black women? How do we invest in structural addressing structural inequality in society and really making a difference for the long haul? Beyond, I love what you said about just beyond the the ones of photo opportunities yeah. or ones of yeah. donations. But yeah. often in the in the private sector space, this similar kind of cabal mentality plays out around. Oh well, my, all our children go to the school, so let's, as a law firm, invest in the school, mm. or let's invest in. Let's not go find those invisible pockets of excellence out there in rural areas and not connected to us and not part of our social network. Often in philanthropy, we accused of funding what's called the usual suspects, mm. the, the same old people mm-hmm. that, that manage to access funding that's within our networks that think like us. And I think the challenge to philanthropy and the private sector and everyone who wants to really give back in this country right now is to go and find those invisible organizations that aren't always in the media, that aren't always out there, and that don't have access to resources, Mm -hmm. and then invest in them for the long haul. Uh, and, and until we see change happening, because change doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. If we really want to address these issues, it's not going to happen over one year where you invest or make one project donation. You actually have to commit to investing in the leadership of women over five years or ten years um, to really make a change. Well, what, what a lovely call, Sam. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to pause, Nicolette, and then come back after the headlines. I've got to go to Utsi Lesaku for the latest in one thirty. SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. You're listening to Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. Pimelo, um, you know, personally myself, uh, I would actually prefer to be led by women. And because women are compassionate, women are builders of uh, communities, women bring about peace. So the problem with the current uh, uh, leadership that we have in the country and you know across the 
continent at large is that there's a cabal of men that have ascended the leadership stages, but they pretend as if they're doing something for women. But actually, they're not doing anything. They'll just patch you know, women here and there, put one as a deputy secretary there. But in the greater scheme of things, there is nothing tangible that they're actually doing. So I propose that since women are in majority in the world, I'd like them to um, you know, vote for other female women in all, uh, in all aspects, be it in government or in, uh, in corporate sector, so that the women may vote. Thank you. So Nicolette Naylor is my guest. She's from the Ford Foundation International Program. She is a, 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 a international program director of gender, racial and ethnic justice there. And we're discussing really all sorts of things, but a, a look, just an introspective look into what is happening in the philanthropy uh, sector, uh, particularly with regards to how it sees women, how it empowers women and supports women, uh, particularly black women. Nicolette has written extensively on this particular issue. And I just thought it's interesting to just have a look. It is International Women's Day and how we're doing, how we're doing. And it's easy to you always, you know, talk about um, things that are going wrong in other sectors, but it's it's a it's always difficult to talk about philanthropy because these are the people who are doing right, aren't they? These are the people who hold governments accountable and so on. So when we look at the sector, we need to then ask the questions: Can they do better? And Nicolette is saying, well, they certainly can. So let's like, Nicolette, let me ask you this: Who does the status quo stand to benefit? Why does it continue to be this way? Look, I think that the, the, you you make the point around philanthropy. Mm. Um, the fact that philanthropy is in the business of doing good mm. and giving money uh, to organizations that need it or to causes that need it. Um, I mean, philanthropy is really rooted in the love of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that often gives us almost a free pass yep. to not interrogate our own practices and our own biases and how that plays out. Because there's the sense that if we start holding philanthropy accountable, we're going to lose the money. And I think that we need to shift the way we see donor aid operating in countries, whether it's from the global north to the global south. Philanthropy's relationship with grassroots organizations and civil society, so that we're not just asking civil society to be accountable. We give you $100,000 and you must account to us. But what does mutual accountability look like? And how do we start interrogating how philanthropy itself operates? And, you know, this requires us to ask ourselves hard questions about where the money comes from for philanthropy and what does a redistributive agenda look like when the wealthy are giving to those that are in need and how that wealth has been accumulated in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I could take, we could go off in a whole different direction on on that point. But I think the, the main point I want to make is that we can't use our philanthropic dollars to say, well, we are doing good. If you look at the Ford Foundation spends about $13 million a year in this region, in Southern Africa. That doesn't mean we're not making mistakes. We also make mistakes. We also struggle to get money to organizations that are most in need. We can't just say, well, because we give so much money to Southern Africa, that that lets us off the hook and we don't need to interrogate our practices. And so it's about asking different questions around accountability because we like to throw around accountability um, and say civil society has to be accountable. They need to account for the way money is spent. 
let's start asking ourselves how accountable is philanthropy? How accountable is the CSI sector? How accountable is donor aid that's mm. flowing into this country? And what are the strings attached? And what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable to us? at country level or at regional level. I'm also hearing you say there needs to be a a proactive approach to this where you're not waiting for these applications to come in, but you go into rural, wherever it is, right? Northern Cape, for instance, and eke out these organizations that are doing whatever they're doing on the ground and are not necessarily uh, sending in applications and see if that cannot be uh, changed, where they can be assisted, where we go out and seek them out and eke them out. Definitely. I think we need to start saying who's invisible to us, mm-hmm. who, who isn't sending in the, the applications and how do we actually do targeted calls for proposals? How do we actually make sure that we're hearing from the women in the Northern Cape? Mm. That requires you to actually go out there and listen to people on the ground and not only your network mm. in your Johannesburg office yep. or your Santon office. Yeah. Jane is calling from Johannesburg. Good afternoon, Jane. Thanks for calling. Hi, good afternoon. I've been listening to this. I've been absolutely fascinated. I just started an NGO called Go, 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 Go. Mm -hmm. And the NGO um, speaks to a lot of what um, your guest is speaking about, about looking at the value of invisible communities and how to support those communities in accessing projects and funding. And we are working, we want to work with grandmothers who are raising third-generation children. And these grandmothers who are raising over 4 million children in South Africa are are not seen as a target um, audience or target market for funding. They're not, their resources and the the skills and the expertise they bring to to child raising isn't recognized by, by funders. And so much of what we're trying to do is to look at the need to understand the, the, the skills and expertise of these older women. And but because we aren't doing a sort of a relief project, but we want to do a development project, it's so difficult to get funding. People want to hand out blankets and food. Mm-hmm. They don't want to hand out and invest in a long-term project where we will be developing the capacity of grandmothers as child raisers. Hmm. Nicolette? Thank you, Jane. I think this is such an important point that takes us to the difference between organizations that are trying to make structural change versus, you know, Mm. uh, short-term charitable approaches. Mm. Um, And different funders approach this differently. Some funders are clear that we're going to take a humanitarian approach and we need humanitarian response. Mm, Sometimes mm. we need the food and the blankets. We need both. We need to see these as a continuum. You also need those that are going to be addressing structural change. Mm. But the issue you raise around um, the role of grandmothers Mm. and this speaks to indigenous knowledge and how we Mm. value who the experts are and who aren't the experts. So let's fund researchers, and academics to tell us about raising children versus let's invest in grandmothers um, with indigenous knowledge around how to uh, raise children. That's also a very political mm. way of how we value who the experts are in bringing about change. Mm. And often we don't value black women, brown women, indigenous women for their indigenous knowledge and expertise. And they're not seen as experts in our theories of change on how to bring about 
structural change in society. And I think that's something that often then prevents those organizations from accessing funding is the way we view whether or not they're bringing about structural change or real change or whether this is seen just as anecdotal evidence. And so we also need to improve our evidence base around the role that indigenous knowledge plays and the role that indigenous women's organizations and older women play in terms of passing on knowledge and and bringing about change. Thanks for that, um, Nicolette and Jane. And, and and I think it's 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 going to lead me to our next question, Nicolette. Uh, you often find these trending causes, right, over a period of time. Um, sometimes it would be hunger alleviation because it was the 80s and then there would be another cause. And then we are now talking all talking about gender based violence and so on. When you are not within that offering, it's often very difficult to, to, to continue, you know, thriving. And I want us to assist those who are not necessarily, um, you know, dealing with issues that are trendy at the moment. What advice would you give them to continue going? What other mechanisms could they use to seek to still find the attention of the Ford Foundation for argument's sake? I think this is so important because this this speaks to the issue of the sexy topics and this is the sexy topic and often the sexy topics in philanthropy are driven by media. Yep, yep. And it's driven by, so we're seeing increased rates of femicide mm-hmm. and then there's a conversation that gets started on femicide. Mm-hmm. And so I would also say that the challenge is how do we start creating those conversations and creating those trends because those trends don't just fall out of the sky. So when Me Too becomes a trend around the world or when femicide um, is trending in the media, Mm. high net worth individuals, donors, philanthropy sits up and says, how can we be more responsive? Mm -hmm. And so how do you start creating that buzz around this is an important topic? And I also think that we need to start talking about the fact that women don't live single-issue lives, yes. to quote Audrey Lord. <laughs> yes. Women's lives are integrated. Yeah. Women don't only face femicide on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. They face economic exclusion. Mm. They're facing issues of food security. And so what does a holistic, intersectional approach look like if we really want to address gender equality? It's about not ghettoizing or creating silos of issues. And yeah, I'm implicating my myself yeah. and my own foundation because <laughs> yeah. we we fight, we we say, look, we have such limited resources. Yeah. We're going to really put all our resources to addressing gender-based violence because we think that's an issue mm. that we have to address. And other foundations say we're going to address education mm. or we're going to address ending child marriage. Mm. And that's unfortunately the way philanthropy organized itself. And you're now seeing more and more movements saying, well, actually, this is not how the real lives of women play out. Women's lives play out in multiple ways and in multifaceted ways. And my response is that requires more of us to work together. So how did the Ford Foundation partner with other foundations that have different focus areas? And how do we start mapping the terrain to make sure that they're on gaps? If we're all funding the same thing and Mm -hmm. no one's funding education or no Mm -hmm. one's funding food security Mm -hmm. or economic exclusion, that's a problem. But I don't think one foundation can solve all the problems of the world or one private sector company. And that's why more coordination and collaboration is required across government, the private sector, 
philanthropy so that we being more responsive to those organizations rather than telling organizations change your focus develop a proposal to fit forward's needs versus if you acting based on what your community's mandate is to you and what your beneficiaries need then i think that's the right way to go you shouldn't be tailoring your your work to meet a a foreign foundation's um agenda you should actually be making sure that you you being true to your constituency and we as the philanthropy sector need to get better at being responsive in a more holistic way how can philanthropy and those who are in the business of philanthropy assist csi projects within corporations and i say that because you've just been speaking about how there needs to be more collaboration you know no one organization is going to solve it all but certainly companies do have csi projects but often you find that with all the good intentions in the world they, they often get it wrong because they're not necessarily the experts you know they've got this budget they want to do something but but they they kind of misstep a little bit where i find perhaps if they had partnered with uh, an organization whose business it is to do this work maybe the the funds would have been utilized better is that getting better or not i think we're seeing a lot more coordination now we've seen how the sectors come together around the gender based violence fund in the country private sector development partners government and the feminist movement really coming together to push for a common agenda and working together where where you can come to the table and say look we as a private sector company we feel strongly about this issue but we don't have the, we're not used to doing this kind of work we want to be guided by you and for philanthropy to say look we're not used to working with a private sector you have some different skills that we can learn from i think we all need to be on a learning journey and we need to work together and identify those networks that bring us together and i think we have the independent philanthropy association of south africa we've got networks coming together where more and more donors are recognizing we have to sit around the same table and actually start discussing what we're doing how we're doing it where we're failing and how we can do better together and i feel like those spaces rather than each one of us going off and doing our own little project on our own and hoping to achieve some big societal change we only going to bring about societal change if we actually sit together and have honest conversations about how we all failing i mean i don't want it to sound like ford is getting this right but yes, we're sure. all making mistakes sure. along the way and that's the way we're going to get better at this where we all actually come um and leave our egos and our logos at the door and actually say we're doing this to better the country and to better what we need to do for gender equality in the country and you know that's how we're going to approach this issue rather than yeah. we want our logo on this sure. and we want this to be a ford foundation initiative mm. you said something earlier that i think is is a really an interesting point around um the the, the point of this obviously is reflection and you were saying how when when organizations and the world reflects on why we are not um spending money on black run organizations women led organizations the the response is generally because you know we have not shown compliance with certain uh, requirements and so on you not we're not calling it a, a race issue and you are saying but it is a racial issues what's so significant about calling it exactly as it is I think it forces 
is us, if we start, we have to start naming discrimination where we see it, and we have to start naming trends around racism and white supremacy, and start seeing how patriarchy and white supremacy are playing out, and there's a toxic marriage between patriarchy and white supremacy that plays out to render black women's work invisible in in the sector. And so, by calling it out, you actually then have to take make redress. You actually have to start saying, what are we going to do to address this? It becomes less of an individual organization's problem Mm. um, or an individual Mm. um, institution's problem. It becomes a societal problem that that we're going to address. Because too much now, we're putting the burden on black-led organizations. Well, you're just not good enough Mm -hmm. at raising money. Mm -hmm. You know, when there was a white leader here... He managed to raise a lot of Mm -hmm. money. Now the black woman comes on board. She's not raising money. That's because there's something lacking in her. Mm -hmm. We need to change the narrative here and say there's something lacking in the system Mm -hmm. and the way the system operates that values the ability and values white male leadership. And I think investing in saying we're going to invest in and support black women's leadership for what it is. And, and not start saying, put all the onus on that black woman. You need to go for courses. You need to go for capacity development and capacity building. And we're going to show you how to be a leader. And we're going to teach you how to fundraise. No. I think we need to ask ourselves a very different question around seeing this as a form of indirect discrimination. And it's very hard for us to see systemic discrimination and structural discrimination at play. It's hard. We can see it quite clearly and call out racism when people are being overtly racist. But I think the problem we have in this country is at that indirect implicit Mm -hmm. bias Mm -hmm. level, Mm -hmm. where implicit bias plays out in who we promote, who we elevate to leadership positions, and in the philanthropy space, who we value as um, being worthy to fund and who not to fund. And I think that once you start calling that out, and you are committed to addressing discrimination, you have to then take steps and redress steps. Um, and so that's why I think that is the first step that, that we actually need to need to take. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, um, there is some money that's being spent, but it's nowhere near addressing the issues, you know, particularly now where we've been affected by COVID-19 so adversely. Where does one begin to start dealing with the structural problems that we're seeing in a society like South Africa? Well, I think we need to begin by saying COVID has impacted on black women in this country in ways that are that has taken us back. Mm. We have to recognize that firstly and do an analysis. Mm. Um, I was reading that where the pay gap Before the pay gap between women and men was 30%, the pay gap since COVID is now 46%. And the majority of people that have lost their jobs have been black women, low-wage workers in the informal sector. Mm. That is a race issue. Mm. And how are we going to address that? So we have a feminization of COVID-19, and we've seen the real impacts on black women in this country. And so as a starting point, you have to start saying, we're not just going to address gender as a gender-blind issue. We're going to address this in terms of race, and we're going to actually get at what is the policies that we need right now, the policies by government, the private sector, and the philanthropy space to actively address this issue and say, 
we're going to try to fix the issue of black women being excluded. If we look at the rates of violence, the rates of femicide, what is the impact on black women? And how do we actually start directing resources and investing in addressing that at the race and gender level together? Not just saying this is a general problem that we're trying to address. We're actually going to have to start saying as a country, this is something that's affecting black women. And we need a shift in policies. We need a shift in the social, the political and the economic to address this. Nicolette, I've loved talking to you, um, and I think it's it's become more complex, hasn't it, with COVID um, being also, uh, you know, something that's gone into the mix. And so, so much has changed. Industries have changed. Those, so those jobs are going to change, and where those opportunities are going to come from is going to change. Um, there are women who are listening to you right now. Your message to them on International Women's Day. I think I want to acknowledge the bravery of women out there. We need to celebrate ourselves and we need to celebrate each other. And we need to hold each other up. Because this is a hard journey. It's a long journey. It's a hard journey. But we need to be there for each other. And we need to start stop taking this on as something that's, that's wrong that we haven't done right. We have to start recognizing that the system has failed us. And we have to start pushing for the system to change. Uh, and so on International Women's Day, I think I want to salute the women that in every way, every day are trying to dismantle racism or trying to dismantle patriarchy. I salute you all. This is hard work mm-hmm. and we should keep doing it. And we need to start finding more allies and champions out there. Mm-hmm. And we need the men in society not to buy us flowers only and take us to dinner, but actually fight the good fight with us and fight for gender equality that's going to be more meaningful. Stop committing acts of femicide against us. Fight for equal pay for us. Um, That's going to be more beneficial for us in the long term. Share the care burden with us and the unpaid care work that women have to do Mm. by Men sharing that burden with us will go much further than buying flowers or taking us to dinner on an International Women's yeah, Day. Yeah. Nicolette, thank you so much uh, for talking to us this afternoon. Nicolette Naylor uh, is a Ford Foundation International Program Director dealing in gender, racial and ethnic justice. For more information and if you want to get um, you know, in touch with Ford Foundation, just go to their website. It is fordfoundation.org. FordFoundation.org. And I'm really curious. I'm curious. I asked Nicolette when we started this conversation, what does International Women's Day mean to you? I'm curious what it means to you. I'm also curious who is top of mind for you today. Um, and I think I think there are many of us who are thinking about many women. I, for one, I'm thinking of many women. But I don't know. In my mind today, I've had Casta Semenya on my mind a lot um, and how you know, it's interesting how when we decide to rally behind somebody, what happens? Um, and I remember that it was very ca- this very country, all of us, who at some point chastised Casta for who she is. And the, I mean, I was also on radio at the time and the kind of um, abuse she would get from people who would call her all sorts of things. And, and at some point there was a, then a shift where there was support for Casta and what that did for her, I imagine. I don't know. I don't even know. But I imagine it, it must have done something for her. And I wonder what that looks like for each and every single one of us, just to get the recognition and support that you so long from your peers, from your countrymen, from 
just from from society what opportunities and doors open for all of us if all of us rally behind each other and i dare say unfortunately women are often on their own and it it's not this is not a, a preaching session but it's um it's a moment for us to ask ourselves if we've done enough in our own little quarters to rally behind other women because let me tell you whether you believe it or not it's harder for women it really is harder for women you don't have to believe it you just have to walk in their shoes to recognize just how hard it is and i wonder if you say you are behind women in your daily life do you do that do you make sure she gets paid like her male counterpart do you protect the spaces she works in what what are your policies around little things you know that kind of time she goes home and whether she's safe when she gets home and all of those things and what kind of all of those support mechanisms that are there as a woman who has to navigate this earth what are you doing in your little quarter to make it possible for her life to be just that little much easier it's a question i have for you and i'd love your take on this one and i'll take your calls on 0117142006 as well as on whatsapp i'll take those voice notes on 0614104107